in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Chad Robinson. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing all right. Got my second shot. Very happy. Second shot of whiskey? <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that up to the listener. Okay. Okay, yeah. And if you're listening to this five years down the line, this is this. Chad's ready to exit the COVID crisis. I wish. I bet you wish you had gotten your shot a little bit sooner because you, you actually got it before, didn't you? Yes. Yes, I did. I don't recommend it. Now, I am excited also because we have a crossover episode today. And we're going to cross over with Aaron Kronikin of the of the movie review crew. How are you doing, Aaron? Doing well. Thanks. Excited to be here. All right. Now, Aaron, if people don't know about the movie review crew, tell them about it. Well, really, it, it started as kind of an excuse as we all grew up and moved out and, and got uh, adult jobs to, to kind of force us to get together every week and, and talk about something we all enjoy, and that's movies. It's something we did anyways while we were able to get together, and now especially with with COVID going on, it's a good release to to escape and actually keep in touch with people that that we can no longer really see. So we don't take ourselves too seriously on the podcast. Really, it's just a, a group of friends that get together and and talk about movies that uh, we really have no rhyme or reason for which movies we pick. It's just kind of from a month to month, sometimes we do themes. Um, you know, in October we'll do horror movies. Uh, we've done what we called our prove it picks, where we pick a movie or an actor or something, and we try to prove something that is not necessarily recognized or accepted. Or uh, we just kind of go with the flow and and have fun with it. And you you tend to tick stick with more current films most of the time, right? Uh, a lot of the times we do a lot of listener requests. Um, the big movies that come out, we'll try to touch on. It really kind of depends. We've got a rotation of five, sometimes six of us that will will pick the movies. We all have different tastes. I tend to lean towards some of the older stuff, like The Sting. It, it just kind of depends. It, it's really just a variety. We do try to touch on the, the big recent releases, but we don't do a, a weekly podcast of all of the new release movies again if you're a fan of the retro movie roundtable i i urge you to check out uh the movie review crew podcast they're not uh, lightweights either you, you you mentioned that they have fun but you make you guys make insightful comments as well so i i appreciate that so none of that will happen on the show today <laughs> ah. <laughs> exactly yeah so uh before we get going though aaron what's the last movie you saw oh i wish I had a better answer for you, um, but <laughs> I've got a uh, two going on three-year-old son that uh, we just watched 
Spirit, and I couldn't even tell you when that movie came out. It was the first time any of us had seen it. My Is that wife. a horse movie? Yeah, the horse movie, exactly. Yeah, So I think I saw it's it. It's not exactly, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not like on the AFI Top 100 or anything, but that's the last thing I saw. Yet, until they revisit it, it could exactly. be next time. Yep. So I was surprised to hear Matt Damon was the, I, I didn't know anything about it. He saw the movie, he wanted to, to watch it, so we, we watched it. And Matt Damon was the narrator and the, the voice of, of spirit. So that was a, I mean, at least there's a big name to recognize. Yeah, yeah. If you want to see Jason Bourne be a horse, then that's your movie. So, exactly. Yeah, it's exactly that. Chad, what about you? What's the last movie you saw? 1987's Near Dark. It's a vampire film with Bill Paxton in it. One of these days, Chad, you're going to walk in here and hit me with not a horror movie for the last movie you saw, and I'm going to just fall out of my chair. Was that uh, Catherine Bigelow? Was that her? Yes. Yes, it was. See, yeah, see, I, I, I've seen that years ago. I saw that. I don't even remember if I liked it or not, to be honest. It's not memorable other than Bill Paxton's great in it, but I will defend my honor here, sir, Russell. I saw King Kong, Godzilla vs. Kong in the last podcast. Okay, they're monsters, though, but uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, if Mortal Kombat were out, actually, I guess it is out now. Yeah, it is. uh, I haven't gotten to it. Yeah. I hope they keep the iconic song. I just get that in my head. They do. They got rid of Johnny Cage, though, and that is offensive to me. Well, I think that's going to make a lot of people happy because a lot of people don't like him. But uh... Oh, boo your opinions. <laughs> what is the last movie? I saw Justice League, the Snyder Cut, which is... Oh, no. I, I had to do it in <laughs> about nine sittings. I'm not kidding. I really broke Oof. this thing up into a lot of pieces. It's long. <laughs> that's Russell's <laughs> review. It's long. Yeah, we actually, to be honest, we touched on that in our podcast, and that was kind of the consensus. I mean, it's it's not much better. You can't really improve something by making it twice as long. Yeah, there's, you know, you're going to get a little more character development, stuff like that. It uh, it It is really flirting with the notion of just going to a TV miniseries. And they do have chapters in it that you could make it into that, but it's not set up for that either. So it, it it's, uh, I think if there was ever something that got caught in the middle ground, it's this. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the DC Universe. I'm not sure if Snyder's keys will be taken away from him. I don't know if reboots and stuff are coming. I just know that the it, it probably hasn't come together the way they were hoping it would, uh, you know, at least in comparison to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What is a movie that you were not sure you wanted to see, but a friend or family member pushed you to see it and you loved it? Is it spirited? I This was actually not really friend or family. It was one of our listeners, and I honestly, I can't remember who who recommended it, but a movie from 2014 called Whiplash. Yeah. Which yeah. Mm-hmm. I had at that point when we watched it, I'd not seen any of Damien Chazelle's movie. I didn't see... Uh, La La Land, um, and I don't remember if at the time we we watched it, if First Man had come out yet, but I had only seen a few things of Miles Teller, one being the uh, Fantastic Four movie. Mm, That was great, right? So I I was convinced that he was terrible, but man, Whiplash was one of the biggest surprises, you know, from from a, a standpoint of what I expected to what I ended up getting fantastic i mean it completely changed my mind about miles teller and i mean it was one of the biggest surprises for a a movie watching experiences i've ever had good answer 
answer. I like that. Chad, what about you? I don't think I've asked you this one ever before. What's a movie that uh, was an underdog pick for you? No, this one this one was a good question. I actually had to go to one that your wife recommended to me. I'm going to stick with my vampire theme. I famously don't like vampire movies. So In the Shadow of the Vampire had all the makings of a movie I would just hate. But Gary Oldman won me over. It was fantastic. Hmm. All right. And uh, mine came from a recommendation from my wife. She actually went to see this one without me and then pushed me to see it after the fact. But uh, the 2007 Stardust, uh, it's a fantasy movie. And I just didn't get into it, judging it by its cover and or I didn't see any promos for it at the time. And then when I watched it, I liked it. It's a really good movie. So I, it's a lot of fun, actually. That being said, today's movie is Chad what? 1973's The Sting. Is this the lead singer of The Police? Yeah, yep, that's the one. <laughs> okay. Don't stand so close to me, sir. All right. I've got a message in a bottle for you. This movie comes out in 1973. It grosses $159.6 million, placing it at number two in the box office that year. It was actually the fourth highest grossing film in history at the time, so it performed extremely strong. The problem is The Exorcist performed even stronger. And it came out at the same time. So The Exorcist is your number one movie that year. Then The Sting. And the movie that comes in behind The Sting is American Graffiti. That's a heck of a year, I gotta say, right off the top there. So IMDb gives The Sting an 8.3. Critics of Rotten Tomatoes give it a 94%. That's pretty fresh. And the audience score gives it 95%. So people love this movie. The Academy Awards love this movie. It's the winner of seven. It wins Best Picture, Best Director, Best Writing, and Original Screenplay, Best Art Direction and Set Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, Best Music Scoring. It uh, gets an additional three nominations from the Oscars for Best Actor for Redford, Best Cinematography, best sound as well and it only wins one golden globe not as popular with the golden globes for best uh screenplay and a motion picture now aaron tell us the sting had you seen this movie before what was your first time seeing it and what was it like coming back to it today uh, i have seen it before um i think i mentioned when we kind of touched base before this that paul newman is my favorite actor and it, the the way how that happened was my dad's favorite movie is Jeremiah Johnson with Robert Redford. So then I started watching his filmography, which led, you know, with The Sting and with uh, Butch Cassidy, led to seeing Paul Newman and then his filmography. And uh, I, I think it's the movies of that era were definitely different types of movies, slower, more character-driven, uh, give time to the, the big-time stars. And this is one that stood out as it seemed like two actors, I mean, and at this point, both in their prime, just having fun. And and I know maybe that's just because I saw it, you know, 30 plus years after it came out. And, and there's this kind of legend of the friendship between Paul Newman and and Robert Redford. But it just seems like such a fun movie and kind of a throwback to an era that obviously we weren't part of, but I think it's fantastic. And I think it still holds up. I mean, obviously at the time it was loved and, and with audience and critic scores in the high nineties, it's, it's a movie. I think everybody should take the opportunity to watch if they can. Yeah. It's a, it, it is my first time doing it, but Chad, what about you? Had you done this one before? No, other than Captain America and the Winter Soldier, I've never seen a film with Robert Redford in it. 
So. Oh no! Wait, uh, yes. really? Wow, Great Gatsby. What about Great Gatsby? I thought we had to watch that in school. Nope. Oh man. Okay. I read the book. Okay. Test it out. Yeah, this is this is a genre I don't really seek out. Uh, I know it's been very very popular with podcasts, but yeah, for whatever reason, crime noir. I don't know if this really counts as noir, but it's crime con. Uh, it's not something that I seek out. I do love the Oceans movies. So this was a new, kind of a new territory for me, but I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Uh, and as I mentioned, this is my first time through this. My dad had mentioned it uh, over the years as liking it. Uh, my mom was way better about putting movies that my, that she liked in front of me than my dad was. Um, anyway, so my dad, my dad didn't actually get it in front of me, and it's one of those movies that you always just kind of have in the back of your mind to see. So I was pretty excited to do it for the podcast, and I have had a little bit of Paul Newman and a little bit of Robert Redford exposure here and there, and uh, I liked what I saw before. But I got to say, this to me is working even more. I, I had seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and I enjoyed it, but this this to me was even better for for seeing the two of them together, and so. I did enjoy the Chicago setting, even though it's not filmed that much in Chicago, and I just kind of had a lot of fun with it. I was expecting a heavier movie, given the synopsis of the movie, but um, it's presented in a lighter, more fun fashion, and I gotta say, returning to it on a second watch, I liked it even more, so I think it rewatches really well. Yeah, I agree. It's, And I think when I first saw it, I had the same feeling. You kind of think of... Uh, just when you read the synopsis and when you see, I mean, a crime movie about con men trying to pull one over on this, this, you know, higher up in the mob. And it's like, it, it comes off as more of kind of a goofy buddy movie than it does a, a true crime con movie. But I, I think the, the tone really helps it with the two lead actors and the tone and the the music and the way it's presented, I think is all just a combination for a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. Now we are going to spoil the sting. So if you haven't seen the sting, please go back and check it out. You're going to love it. And uh, we're going to spoil it after these messages. So we will be back after this. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals like you what happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up you get the classic film jerks podcast find the classic film jerks podcast on all the major platforms all right we're back and this is your final warning there will be spoilers that lie ahead so if you have not seen the 1973 the sting well this is your final warning so anyway chad for the why don't you give people a recap of what happens in The Sting? Robert Redford plays a grifter during the Great Depression by the name of Johnny Hooker. He manages to call in $11,000 from a low-level mobster, then he proceeds to blow it all on a single roulette spin. Next, he pays a police lieutenant in counterfeit bills. Really, the first part of the movie is just him making a ton of bad decisions. <laughs> uh, so, so anyways, the mobster he conned worked for 
Doyle Lonigan, who manages to kill Hooker's partner, and Hooker flees to Chicago to seek out Paul Newman's Henry Gondorf. After finding Gondorf, the two men set out to con Lonigan using a scam known as The Wire. There's a lot of twists and turns, they change names and allegiances, Hooker goes by Kelly, Gondorf by Shaw, eventually Hooker, posing as Kelly, convinces Lonigan to buy into a past-posting horse race bet, that's a mouthful, by going through Les Harmon, who is actually Kid Twist, which is a ridiculous name, if I say so myself. Uh, Lonigan bets $500,000 on a fake horse race, and then is surrounded by FBI agents. The FBI appears to arrest Gondorf as well, who shoots Hooker for the betrayal. Polk from the FBI shoots Gondorf, and Lonigan is escorted away. Hooker and Gondorf rise up, having faked the whole thing. Polk is actually a con man, too. Hooker refuses his share of Gondorf's con, stating he'd just blow it anyways, having never heard of a savings account. <laughs> and they walk off into the sunset. So, uh, Aaron, let's talk about, like, the sting as a story here um this is i'm not sure necessarily how early it comes in but uh, i feel like crime as a as a genre is well established but i don't know how often crime is fun at this point in time right yeah and i think that's why this stands apart from others in this genre I mean, at no point, and I guess maybe that might be a weakness of the movie, but at no point did do you ever feel like they won't pull it off. And I think that's partly because of the presentation and partly because you have, I mean, it's just Paul Newman and Robert Redford smiling and, and cheery throughout. So I, I don't think it's like one of these tense, will they or won't they be able to pull it off type of crime movies. It's more of just a fun experience to see how they pull it off. And they do hide the twists at the end from the viewers so that uh, that might be kind of a little bit of a cheap move to to hide information that's obviously known to the leads. But I think it's a good little twist. And like I said, it's just kind of a, a fun experience. Like I said, you, you know, you have a feeling that nothing's going to come of this. No bad will come to these two. But it's fun to see how it all plays out. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that you said... What was it, how you said, uh, does it feel uh, at the end? Well, we have kind of a running thing where, on our podcast, where, in my opinion anyways, I think it's kind of a cheat to hide from the viewer what the two people that you're watching, the two people you've been following the whole time, should know and should have obviously had discussions about. So, I mean, the twist is kind of a, a little bit of a, Put, pull the wool over your eyes and, and reveal it as this big shocking twist. But I think it works in the context of the movie. Yeah, that was an issue for me. I I think of The Prestige. It's a movie that you can watch several times over and you can catch more. And the ending won't really be a surprise if you pick up the little things. This, just at the end, it was like, oh, it's a fake betting place with fake horses and everyone fake died. Oh, okay <laughs> i i wanted a little more conversation in the background that would have led me to that conclusion yeah i think that's just a, i think that's a difference in the presentation that where you were talking about like the prestige which is actually one of our highest downloading episodes and that it's just a it's, it's a very different kind of tense mysterious movie and to aaron's point i feel like this is kind of a roller coaster like you know you're just having fun here and it never stops being fun even when people are shooting at redford 
you know, he hops on the side of a street cleaning car and gets away. Yeah. It's it's fun. It's fun in the way that um, honestly, James Bond was fun at this time at, at this time period. There's interesting, intricate plot points, but it's all being done with a smile on their face. Yeah, they definitely hammer it home with almost a Charlie Chaplin type music. I mean, there's the entertainer all throughout, which, hey, this movie's entertaining. But yeah, some of it, I, there was a great chase scene with Robert Redford and the music was so goofy. I was like, okay, he's being followed by men with guns, but he is always holding his hat and things like that. So you're right, there is a little comedy every, even in a tense situation, except yeah. for poor Luther. I think Aaron adds an interesting point. So you called it cheating a little bit with the audience. Um, I, I want to say director Roy George Hill is thinking about putting the audience through a certain experience of decepting the audience in the way that Doyle Lonigan being decepted. You do not see the setup beginning. You do not see the cheating scene in the poker train happening you think he's about to lose his hand because you know they the way it's filmed they show an inferior hand uh being held by paul newman's character henry gondorf and then across from him lonigan's hand appears like it will beat it and then when they come to laying the cards down all of a sudden he has better cards in the same way that might be as aaron put it a cheat but it's a kind of a got you moment with the audience and they they do the same thing with the fbi negotiation too there's an FBI negotiation. If Polk is in on the, the con, you've not seen him at any other point. And so you're really convinced as an audience member that this is an FBI agent. This contributes again to the fake death scenes in the end. And furthermore, there's the assassinate. Salino. There he is. Salino. L- Loretta Salino, which does sound pretty pretty threatening so and then also with loretta salino being a hitman like they say salino they make you think that this is going to be a tough hitman and they show you a man with black gloves following in first person along the whole time and you don't know that this is a good guy being told to tail him and you don't know that salino is this woman trying to con him you could have seen all of those conversations whether it be from lonigan's men deploying salino you could have seen gondorf uh, saying, I got to have you watch out for this guy. I don't believe he's not being killed. He just doesn't want to tell me. So to your point, Aaron, throughout this movie, over and over again, I might have even forgotten a number of points. It's very consistent that Roy George Hill is not letting the audience know everything that the characters know. And that in itself is a little bit different than most movies today. Actually, I don't mind any of it. I, I like the way it was presented. I just feel like the the twist that both... Redford's character and Newman's character were in on the whole fake FBI sting. Everything else was kind of one may not have known. You know, Redford wasn't in on the idea that uh, he was being followed by somebody that was meant to protect him. And so that works. But the FBI in particular was one that it's like these two concocted this plan together. They're both in on it. But at no point did we ever hear any conversations about anything like it. I think it was just kind of thrown in there to create tension. Yeah. Which I'm, I, like I said, I'm 100% on board with. I, I love the way everything played out in the end. You've got kind of three or four different threads coming together in one big reveal at the end, which is fine. I just, that one in particular was a little different than the other kind of twists throughout. Um, well, I mean, that's the other thing. Chad, does it make you feel any, but did you get a chance to do a second viewing? Does it go down better for you knowing 
kind of the 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 notes that they're going to be playing with like i said they they throw a setup at you right away luther and uh, hooker are conning somebody out of money right at the beginning again they know what's going on you don't is this something that continues to bother you upon a second viewing or once you start to get the hang of it and say like okay i know the rules of the game now no it still does some of it made a little bit more sense and clarity you know i could have spent 10 minutes on the recap just going through okay well here's this name and this person's fake just about every person we name other than lonigan is fake so you know the, it does help as far as catching up on the twists and turns but in the end there's still nothing dropped that would have led me to the conclusion that everything at the end was fake that they they were both in on the fake FBI sting i needed a scene with polk or snyder something Interesting. David S. Ward defines the sting as a moment where the con separates the mark from his money. I want something to go wrong at some point. For Gondor, uh, he feels like he's always on top of everything. I do like the lighter tone of this movie, so I don't want to take that away. But I don't think anything particularly bad happens that causes Gondorf to have to improvise his way out of it or paint himself out of a corner. He's truly on top of it and knows everything that's coming before it comes by 10 steps. Aaron, am I wrong about that? No, yeah, that's absolutely right. I guess I have no solution for how they should have done it, but I agree there, there are a few missteps with how they did do it. One being that apparently Gondorf is kind of this all-knowing legendary con man that like i said the the tone it fits the tone because it it is this lighter kind of feel-good movie rather than a serious con man movie but that leads to like i said at the beginning not once do you ever feel like this is going to go sideways or or something might go wrong and nothing really ever does go wrong because they always like you said they're 10 steps ahead of everything they have everything kind of planned out and it just plays out perfectly, which is fine because it is, like I said, just a kind of a fun experience. But it did lack a little bit of that dramatic thrill, like what's going to happen now? How do they get themselves out of this situation? Yeah, absolutely. It was just a lot of fun. It was fun going back to the Great Depression era, which is a phrase I probably shouldn't use, fun going back to the Great Depression. But like ridiculous things, merry-go-round business exists you know, they're they're calling it the round. And, you know, there's there's a lot of little tiny things where it's just, hey, we're going to keep having fun. At, at points, they're sticking a gun through the glass of a phone booth that's indoors. Like, some of those scenes, I'm just thinking, okay, we're, we're doing that to keep, kind of keep it light. It's, it's still a gun being shoved in someone's face, but it's going through, you could open the phone booth door. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a lot of goofy things that are going on through this. The, the street cleaner, I had it marked as a Zamboni. That's still a lot of fun, too. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like you said, there are guns. There's, there is some element of danger. There are four people who die in this movie. It just doesn't feel like it. Man, I didn't realize that. So anyway, although the prospect of reteaming up Paul Newman and Robert Redford seemed viable to the studio, uh, they had a concern that the movie The Two Conmans Partnership hinges on the possibility that one or both will betray and cro- uh, double-cross each other. And with Redford and Newman so famously being chummy and having uh, Butch Cassidy 
uh, in the rear view behind them. They were concerned audiences just wouldn't believe that this betrayal could happen between the two of them. And George Ware Hill goes to bat for them. Aaron, do you feel like that was happening? Obviously, you've seen this before, but did you, were you pulled in that tension and that enough? Yeah, I think on, you know, second, third, so on viewing, it is tough. And like I said, I saw this 30, 40 years after its original release, and I was very aware of the Paul Newman, Robert Redford friendship. So I think that was a very real concern. And maybe they were right that they are so chummy. It's such a lighthearted movie that I guess you really don't ever think that he will double cross him. But I, I think maybe the character was developed enough that maybe he would in order, if he's just looking out for himself in order to get himself out of that tight situation that we think he's in. But, you know, second, third, fourth viewing, obviously, you know what's happened, but you recognize that it's such a lighthearted movie that I don't know that I did ever feel like it's a possibility. Uh. I thought we were in the 70s at a more serious movie time. So when uh, Hooker initially appears to be ratting out Gondorf, I was sitting there going like, oh, man, you're really doing through with this. Like you never you really were, were at the moment. You still haven't whispered to him. You know, I, I kept expecting Gondorf to have to improvise his way out of this and to get an escape and them still nail Lonigan. It didn't happen the way I thought it was going to. And I was almost really disappointed in Hooker's character to the point where I was about to walk away pretty mad. And then when when he when they were shooting each other and everything like that, I, I had that like, oh, no, is this the, what this <laughs> movie's going to be like? Well, so I guess maybe that's the difference. I saw this so long ago and I've seen it so many times over the years that maybe it's just because I don't remember how I thought of it the first time that now I obviously know what's going to happen that I just have no expectations of otherwise. But for you guys, this is both your first viewing. So maybe it did work better than I'm giving it credit. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I, I I was like, I really enjoyed this movie up to this point and this is not how I want to walk out on this one. And uh, when they got up and then dusted themselves off, my I had a little bit of like, I've been fooled and I don't like being fooled. I like to be interested. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I was much happier being fooled than I was at the potential what would have happened had I not been deceived. So I was glad to see them walk off in the sunset together. It's funny that we've, we've spent a lot of time on this ending, but uh, it is so much better than what it appeared that it was going to be. I'll, I'll certainly say that. Yeah, I was fooled. I'd I don't have the context of their friendship. I run a movie podcast and just don't see their movies very much, uh, which is just an indictment of me. But yeah, I'm with you, Russell. I wrote down in my notes, it's like, why throw Shaw under the bus? Like, what is happening here, Hooker? Don't disappoint me. And then at the end, it's like, oh, I had the same thought. Okay, so this is going to be one where everyone's dead and we roll the credits and just move on with our lives? I would not like that at all. Yeah, so it is a redeeming finish then. Yeah, you're right. I don't think anybody wants to see everybody shoot each other up and then end on that. But uh, yeah, Paul Newman also wasn't sure that he was right for the part of Gondorf. Newman loved the script. He just thought the person playing Gondorf should be much older. It was originally written to be an overweight past one's prime slob with a drinking problem, which they kind of alluded to in the when you first meet Gondorf that he's a drunk. But after that, he's sure is smooth and on smooth and sharp the whole rest of the way through so it was only about half of david s wagner's original screenplay uh, that really came through with this and it was intended to be a much paunchier 
gruff mentor to Hooker, as well as Hooker was supposed to be a much younger character. So these characters are closer in age than they were supposed to be. It was supposed to be a spunky young person, perhaps in their young 20s, being mentored by an older, more over the hill kind of person. Knowing that, that those are how those characters are written, I'm going to kick that back out there again. Do you want to see those dynamics changed or is it just, it's, it's Newman, it's Redford. Let's not ask questions here. They're great. Uh, I guess that's where I fall. <laughs> um, I, I told you Newman's my favorite actor, so I wouldn't question putting him in any role. But or any salad dressing the, for that matter. Exactly. So I yeah, I don't know. I guess if they wanted to go another way, I didn't really get uh, if it was supposed to be an old washed up mentor kind of father son relationship that they were going for. That didn't come through. But if it was just more of a seasoned veteran con man passing down some knowledge to a younger obviously irresponsible can't make many good decisions type of guy that came through but it sounds like that wasn't their intention (laughs) yeah i like that newman accepted the role because he was trying to prove that he could do comedy so i i think he had something to prove with this and it was a lot of fun i don't know if i want gondorf being this minor character i thought he was pretty central so I, I like the dynamic between Gondorf and Hooker, and I, I don't think that betrayal scene would have stuck out to me as much if Gondorf was just a minor character. I would have been like, okay, that's fine. You do you, Hooker. Well, Robert Redford actually initially turned this down. Jack Nicholson was offered the part, and he actually turned it down before Redford eventually went back and changed his mind. Robert Wagner was also considered... Jack Nicholson, great actor, but I do not want to see him in this movie with how Roy George Hill presented this movie. Oh, no. Uh, Yeah, good move on their part. (laughs) Robert Wagner, I could see, though. I think that would be good. More so than Jack Nicholson, but when Jack Nicholson in particular, when I first read that, I was like, ooh, this is not the time or place for Jack Nicholson. (laughs) (laughs) And then other than Sterling Hayden, Richard Boone, Hugh Griffith, Edward Anser were also considered for the role of Doyle Lonigan. Let's talk about Robert Shaw here. Now, for those who don't know, Robert Shaw is Quint, the old grumpy fisherman in Jaws. And here he's a lot more put together. He's pressed and uh, he, he's a dignified man of the shadows. He's a gangster and he's tough. But uh, man, what a good villain character Shaw plays this time around. Uh, Aaron, talk about Robert Shaw. I loved it. And to be honest, I think maybe he kind of stole the show a little bit. I mean, he's going up against Robert Redford and Paul Newman. He's playing the character you're supposed to be rooting against. But the whole time, I'm like, man, I like this guy. (laughs) There's just right. I I mean, he's this ruthless, terrible person. But he has maybe it's just Robert Shaw and the way it was it was acted and portrayed. But man, I love that character. Yeah, he's just kind of menacing. I don't know how Robert Shaw managed to do it, but Lonigan almost seems he's put together, but a little bit unhinged. Like there's just this undercurrent of simmering anger that he manages to bring to Lonigan, and I liked it a lot. Yeah, yeah, like his pettiness, which is always a good quality for a villain to have, but I love how like obsessive he is. That, like, you know, this is not even money that would keep him alive for two days somebody pointed out at one point but he's bent over back to make sure that nobody steals from me just out of principle and 
I really like that comment that he makes of, you see that guy? I've known him since I was six, but I'd pull a bullet in his head before I let anybody yeah. steal from me. Like, and, right. <laughs> and he delivers it with such a stern face. And I guess I shouldn't have been surprised because I looked it up. And uh, referring back to James Bond, he's read Grant, the henchman from, from Russia with Love. Uh, and he's quite, right. he, he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's in the henchman pantheon for me as a huge Bond fan. So I, without realizing it at three opposite ends of his career, have now connected Robert Shaw as somebody who I'm a huge fan of. And this movie made me make all these connections. Yeah, I got that text from you. Did you know this was Quint? I was like, yes. Yes, I, I, I have to admit that I, I mean, I've seen this movie, I want to say probably at least seven times since I first saw it. This was the first time going into it that i knew it was quint from jaws because it's just well you said he's so much more put together (laughs) and it's almost i mean it's just a completely different character but man like you said that those three portrayals those three performances it's like i never gave him credit obviously i didn't know of him from anything other than jaws at the time but man he's good yeah he is yeah, yes. Now, I, I, having studied Jaws, which we just did back in December, which I really enjoyed that episode, go check that out. Shameless self-promoting, but he's not that nice of a guy to work with, and I was looking for stories like that, but uh, that that comes more later. He's he's horrible to Richard Dreyfuss in the making of Jaws, but uh, uh, given that he's uh, with superstars Robert Redford and Paul Newman, he he's a little more in line. He definitely took the, the director, Roy George Hill, out for drinking, and Unfortunately, Robert Shaw has a drinking problem, and the director said one of the worst decisions I made was to try and keep up with him. And uh, <laughs> Robert Shaw invited George Hill, Roy George Hill, to go over to Ireland to do a pub crawl, which sounds harmless, right? Except for this guy's a professional drinker. And uh, Roy George Hill said, I think we hit every pub in West Ireland, and I made the mistake of just trying to keep drink for drink with him. I blacked out. I was I woke up back in Shaw's home. I was collapsed, exhausted in a bed. I, I woken up by the sound of screaming downstairs in the game room, and Shaw was stripped down to his uh, undershorts, uh, pummeling an opponent into submission with a ping pong uh, paddle, yelling, one more game, you son of a gun. <laughs> I would imagine the language was probably a little more colorful, but yes, that's a great little. <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't guess it just based on his on screen performances movie, but I guess what we know about Robert Shaw that shouldn't be surprising. Yeah, yeah, he's a very colorful character off screen. So, uh, Chad, do you have any fun cast casting uh, stories here? Yeah, other than Richard Boone, who hosted a, a variety hour, he's famous for Have Gun, Will Travel. He actually was up for the part that Robert Shaw was going to get the Doyle Lonigan, but Paul Newman was the one that got Robert Shaw involved. Robert Shaw just, he read it and he goes, this is delicious, which is a weird thing to say. <laughs> and he's like, when do I start? Boy, that was a great tip. Like I said, the, they, they got the right top three guys involved for sure. Robert Redford was uh, recovering from a broken right thumb and in a skiing accident a few months before. And so he was supposed to wear a cast on his arm. So he had to tough it out without that. But did you guys also notice that Robert Shaw's limping around? Yeah. I did yeah. see that. And I actually, I did read about, I, I assume you're going into it, that he had an accident himself and had to incorporate the limp into his character. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Which I think adds to the character. Me too. I thought he, I thought he was just an actor who made a decision. I've come from a tough life in five corners right, and I'm going exactly. to go around limping. Yeah. And, I thought that too. Yeah. 
According to Julia Phillips, who was working on this, Shaw split his ligaments in his knee after slipping on a wet handball court in Beverly Hills a week before filming started. So he uh, had to wear a leg brace underneath his suit. Luckily, those 1930s style trousers conceal a leg brace very well. But you're right. He just had to limp. I just assumed Robert Redford didn't know how to use a gun because there were so many shots in the movie. Like, that's not how you hold that. Well, and I, I guess now that you said that, I, I didn't read anything about Redford's accident. But now that you say that, there were a few times when he was drinking his coffee at the diner and he would hold it with his middle fingers with his thumb. I was like, right. What's he doing? <laughs> I just assumed that was 1930s fancy. I don't right. Know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So if you do pay attention to those little details, yes, Robert Redford doesn't have a good thumb. And then Roy George Hill wanted to have a, sorry, George Roy Hill wanted an unknown face to play Robert Redford's quote unquote love interest of uh, Loretta, who was also a hitman. Audiences wouldn't want to project any preconceived notions under her character. The actress was chosen to play her, Demetria Arliss. She had heard that Universal Studios executives didn't think she was pretty enough for the role to be Robert Redford's love interest, but Hill also fought for her. So it's interesting that Hill fought for this Newman-Redford connection, took Newman's uh, references. And uh, it's interesting that the studio's pushing back on him so much after the success he had with Butch casting the Sundance Kid and how he gets his way left and right, and he's right left and right. So I, I think that was more surprised when I read that too. Is I mean, he's coming off of both critically and financially successful Butch Cassidy. Generally, wouldn't they be like, you know what? whatever formula you want, make it happen. Make us money. <laughs> yeah, apparently not. Don't you get the keys to the car until you screw it up? Right. Apparently that's not the way it was back then. I just feel bad. This has come up on several of our podcasts as we do the older movies, 70s and beyond. Poor Demetra Arliss. You're not pretty enough for this part. Okay. That, that wasn't really necessary for probably the world's tamest sex scene. Yeah. And, and the whole idea is that the whole reason Redford, I mean, they had that scene where he's outside of her door and it wasn't this, like you said, it's not this steamy sexualized scene. It's just two desperate people. Like he said, we're, we're more alike than you think we're it's two in the morning and we've got nobody to turn to. So I don't know that sex appeal even had anything to do with her character. No, not at all. The fact that she has to also be a convincing assassin <laughs> it plays into it too so i think it was a fine casting yeah i was actually rooting for the for him you know he's got to get out of town when this is all said and done so i was actually kind of rooting for him to pull off the sting and uh, then to hit town with loretta and and then go away so when she got uh, shot in the head my first thought was my, that was the first time i went like oh is that what's gonna happen in this movie and then they, they fixed it two seconds later by that guy being like, she was going to shoot you. I was like, oh, <laughs> good. I'm glad you shot her in the head. Who are you? <laughs> so <laughs> this movie definitely played played me like a yo-yo the first time. So <laughs> why don't we talk about the actual writing and the production and the making of this movie? Uh, Aaron, is there anything that any stories in your homework that you kind of wanted to share with this one? Not necessarily. I, I know that it was based on a book, and like you had previously, maybe not a, a book, more of a description of of multiple con men and and the the cons they played in that time. But I just find it curious, and I'd like to find more info. Maybe there's some behind the scenes on the DVD or something about how it got turned into what it is compared to what it 
probably should have been <laughs> in other hands. But, I mean, you're talking about this. You're not supposed to root for con men, but I guess when you're up against Lonigan, ruthless guy. But it, it's the story that shouldn't feel like it should be uh, this goofy fun movie with like you said the the piano riffs and the ragtime music and it's like it doesn't feel like it should be the way it is i i would be really curious and i don't know how it ended up being this and if it really was just george roy hill saying this is the movie i want to make and this is what i'm going to make (laughs) so yeah david ward is weird here so david morer was the guy that wrote the big con it was a 1940s book it had fred and charlie gondorf and he actually sued and won he got three hundred thousand dollars settled out of court but david ward he's like i didn't plagiarize your work i plagiarized multiple works <laughs> yeah, he did. yeah i did read that it's like well that's not any better <laughs> like who are those other people that Come claim your $300,000. So he says he got the idea from working on the script for Steelyard Blues, which included a pickpocketing scene. And then doing research for that, he found himself just going into con artist. And he said he wrote the screenplay. David S. Ward is, that is. He had shown the screenplay to Tony Bill, who gave him the outline of the story. Bill liked it. They immediately brought the idea to Julia Phillips, who I mentioned earlier, and Michael Phillips. And they went into producing the movie. So Ward wrote the script with Rod Redford in mind to be the part of Hooker. So it's good that he changed his mind after initially turning it down to do it because it was it was tailored for him. It's interesting. I haven't read The Big Con by David Maurer to know how close these are, but uh, David S. Ward initially wanted to direct this movie, and it was going to be his first film as a director. However, Redford kind of said that somebody with more experience behind the camera should uh, s- should sign on to do this. That's where they turned to their old buddy, Roy George Hill. And he carried it, and you're right, it did change tone under him. Roy George Hill wanted the film to be stylish, one that was accurate and reflected the field not only of the 1930s Chicago, but one of old Hollywood films from that era as well. And so as soon as Roy George Hill signs on to direct, he changed the tone to be lighter right off the bat. He made choices that would utilize certain stylistic techniques. Like there's like the uh, radial transition or the sideswipe transition that look kind yep, of yep. Look, they look a little bit ghetto. And to Chad's point, some of the music choices and things like that seem to be very lighthearted. And you're kind of like, what is that? This movie seems to be of a higher level production. Joy Roach Hill is making a a love letter to older film and doing that. And apparently this is my bad knowledge of film from the thirties, these sideswipes and, and moments like that. And as well as the period piece of the cars, et cetera, are to transplant you into the 1930s frame of mind. He said, Oh yeah. Uh, They even went with Schlitz, which was the biggest beer distributor at the time. Everyone's drinking Schlitz. Cause I saw that. I'm like, what a weird choice. Apparently (laughs) historically accurate. I, I guess I, to me, I find, I mean, I guess it's fine that he went with those techniques to be more period accurate. And I don't fault him for it with the final product. I guess it, it does, like I said, it makes it stand the test of time because it does stand out as unique, even from other movies of this period in the 70s, to have these old school, really outdated like you said, the, the kind of side swipe transitions, the 
where it kind of focuses in kind of that eyelet transition, uh, things like that, that really, when you first see it, it's jarring because it is like, oh, this is not great. <laughs> but, but he had a reason to do it, and it does make the movie unique. I thought it was really unexpected because yeah. the there were moments of cinematography, and I caught them even the first time, and I saw more than the second time. There were truly inspired shots in the mix, too. So there's these really nice panning, zooming shots that capture the set design of the Chicago streets well. Reflections are used very, very well. Lighting's done well. There's a really nice shot along the Chicago rail line. I mean, there's a lot of craft in what he is doing, but I kept getting distracted, particularly the first time watching it before having done my homework of these 1930s elements coming into it. And I kept going like, something's not right here. Cause I, I'm seeing like, somebody's got some skill, like a lot of skill and it's good and I like it. And then I'm seeing the schlocky stuff and I didn't necessarily see those two things going together. And I'm still honestly kind of reconciling that. Like you put me in the period, there's no doubt about it, but I gotta admit when he's just doing awesome cinematography and being a good director and overseeing that, I, I like that. And to the point of, do I want those transitions? I don't know. And I'm, I'm still I'm still on the fence of that, even as we we're talking. Can can you can one of you guys tip me one side of the fence or not on that? I guess I can't really tip you on one side or the other because there are instances where it works. When you're transitioning from, you've got multiple threads of this con happening at the same time. And when you're transitioning from one set of characters to the other, that kind of jarring side swipe transition does work because it's like you're putting aside one part of the story to jump into another. But what you were talking about, there was one scene in particular that was Gondorf was on this merry-go-round on one of the horses and he turns it on. And this is right when they meet each other and it's tracking Gondorf as Hooker's character is standing in one spot and it's kind of tracking along the side. And it's this really great shot that seems almost immediately jarringly cut just this sideswipe transition that takes you out of that immediately and this is supposed to be the your two big hitters meeting each other for the first time and it just takes you away from it into a different part of the story so sometimes it works a lot of times when it, it just seemed like it was done when it shouldn't have been done i don't know if it was mm -hmm. the way it was or just the timing of it threw me off yeah for me the intro really threw me off for the time period because the intro was so 70s yeah, the players and it's got all the names and kind of the freeze shots of them it's like okay what what era are we going oh great depression okay but the intro is what messed with me really being able to establish okay we're going for the 30s yeah once we got into it the transitions and things it they did a good job of making the movie seem older. I don't know that it was needed, but I guess I appreciate the craft. Yeah, if it was a 30s movie, wouldn't you have like all the credits like up front and like a <laughs> like all of them? Yeah. 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 Uh, I always find it odd how whenever I hop into a really old movie, I always sit there and go like, oh, yes, all of this stuff is up front. Yeah. <laughs> Ten minutes of credits before you can even watch anything. Yeah. They had fewer people working on movies back then, which is merciful, because can you imagine sitting through the entire, uh, you know, everybody that works into making like Avengers, like Endgame or something like that, which is oh, like man. tons and tons of people. Like, it's just like, OK, well, uh, yeah. 
the Falcon and Winter Soldier end credits are seriously seven minutes long. So, yeah. And uh, that's an interesting, I guess this is a, a tangent, but it's interesting how it went from force you to watch the credits at the beginning. At some point they realized nobody cares about these, put these at the end. And now in today's world, it's like, oh, let's force people to watch these thinking that there might be some sort of after credit scene that sets up your next movie. And it's like, there's an odd transition and that's over the span of uh, what? 70, 80 years. They've changed the way credits are portrayed. Now projectionists just turn on the lights. Like we're going to turn it on to let you know there's nothing. Get out. Yeah, exactly. Now there were some fun cast relation stories on this one between the chummy, like you mentioned some of the chumminess as well. And some of that extends into the director, Roy George, or sorry, George Roy Hill. Aaron, are there any of those fun stories, but then the kinship that you wanted to mention on this one? Yes, I, I did read about, uh, and this isn't uncommon from, from all of the books and documentaries I've read about Paul Newman. He, he was prone to practical jokes. And apparently there was a, a kind of a thing between Paul Newman and, and George Roy Hill where, and you'll have to, sorry, I don't have the details in front of me. You'll have to provide those but apparently something had happened where george roy hill owed paul newman eight dollars or billed him eight dollars for some for, sort for of drinks. i don't remember if it was a dinner or drinks okay drinks. so yeah. there you go so instead of paying it paul newman decided to cut his desk in half with a chainsaw and send him the bill for that what that is escalation there's a, there's an in-between step. There's an in-between step. So Newman picked up the drinks and then he sent uh, George Roy Hill a bill for $8 to the production, at which point he's just like, this is our friendship. You've completely abused it. Like, yeah. these, are, these are just drinks. You're not supposed to bill this to the to the movie. And then uh, Newman then followed followed suit by cutting his desk in half and then leaving a note that says, this isn't about friendship. It's about $8. Yeah, and that, that's, I find it great. It, there's a, another story. It, it wasn't at this time, but because of the friendship that they developed over making of this and of Butch Cassidy, but uh, without even acknowledging that it was him, I saw in a documentary, it was actually a racing documentary about Paul Newman's racing career. He was apparently sent just this awful beater of a car by what we find out was Robert Redford. He never acknowledged it. But then Newman had it crushed down into a cube and shipped to Redford's house and put into his uh, entrance. <laughs> and it's like they they never acknowledged between the two of them that it was them that did it. But th- it was that was the type of thing Newman was apparently known for during filming was was practical jokes like that that probably he took too far. But you know, I was say, some of these some of these sound like they go a little bit farther. Like, <laughs> like I don't like my friends to joke me this hard, but I mean it is interesting to read. Uh, George Roy Hill did get him back, though. Uh, he sent Newman an $800 bill for his desk from the studio. That <laughs> if I remember right, he never paid. That is also correct. So, he, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Even though $800... Uh, I guess when you have all this money, point. like, you know, it. <laughs> I guess you can prank at a much higher scale, you know, it, just in case you have to pay it. Exactly. It's the George Clooney rule. For, one day when Redford was gone, Newman took the keys to his Porsche. And hid the car, making Redford think someone had stolen it as well. So more car shenanigans between the two of them during this movie. Like I said, I find myself reading these Paul Newman stories. I'm like, I I don't know if I want to be friends with this guy because, like, (laughs) he pranks you pretty hard. 
Yeah, it makes me think of Super Troopers. Like, our shenanigans are cheeky, fun shenanigans. His are cruel. Evil Evil shenanigans. shenanigans. Not really shenanigans at all. He's Farva. If anyone says shenanigans, Ken. (laughs) Pistol whip him with his bent thumb. (laughs) Most of this movie is shot on a set, but some of it is shot on location. And it was interesting, going back to Robert Shaw, Robert Shaw said Paul Newman attracted so much attention from onlookers that it was hard to pass through the crowds it was hard to like production in the streets was difficult because he had a beatles like craze of fans largely women who were excited to see newman he said river uh, in redford's case not so much in particular newman they really wanted to see him uh and he even said like uh you know like i could walk through the whole crowd nobody would even recognize me but they all wanted to see him so and uh, even when someone did like you're robert shaw right yeah 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 you know paul newman yeah. <laughs> uh yeah yeah i do <laughs> so um i thought that was an interesting thing i was not aware of the degree of craze that he had at this era oh and this is even kind of in a, a downtime in his career because he was he had in the late 60s obviously with butch cassidy and then before that he had cool hand luke he had uh, a western called ombre that was good but like you know Early and late 60s, he was on top of the world. And then in the 70s, if you look at his filmography, the only thing that stands out, obviously, is The Sting. And then he did Towering Inferno, which, if you've seen it, is more of a kind of like a cash grab than a, a serious role for him. So, yeah, that's interesting. Even at the kind of a lull in his career, I mean, at this point, it had probably been at least five years since his last good movie, which was with George Roy Hill and Butch Cassidy. Yeah. Yeah. That's only three years by, behind him at this point though. No. Oh, is it? I thought that was late 60. Oh, four, yeah, Butch yeah, four, four, four. You're right. Okay. Four. four years. Okay. Yeah. I guess that's, I guess when you're talking about movie time, that's not that long. What about the title cards? Did you guys like these little chapters with the ragtime music playing in them? Uh, so for me, I was okay with them, but the problem is they came so spaced out. The setup was 70 minutes long that I'd completely forgotten we were doing title cards by the next time The Wire came out. It's like, oh yeah, we're doing this. And then they just all seemed really bunched together. Oh, I didn't perceive that much space in between them. That's an interesting comment that you make, though. Yeah, I guess I, I didn't notice the distance between each card. I, I honestly, I thought they fit well. I, I liked that they broke it up into separate chapters to... Uh, to kind of tell you, hey, we're moving on to the next part of it. And I guess in a, in a different movie, a different feeling type of con movie, maybe they would have been jarring. But I think it, I think it just creates more of the same type of feeling the rest of the movie was trying to create. Yeah. Now, what about the 1930s era Chicago that they've created here? Do you like this world that you're being immersed into, Aaron? I do. I don't know. Obviously, I wouldn't have any idea how accurate it is. You mean you're not a vampire who's just been like living around <laughs> no, for an eternity? I can't say I've experienced 1930s Chicago, but I like the fact that they went with the dirtier, messy side of Chicago instead of the usual mob. This, you're talking about people that have lots of money, obviously, but where these players are is is kind of in the streets and in the alleys and the the dark grungy diners and i like that they went that way rather than the the fancy money part of chicago the back to the future diner 
It it is literally. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the same diner used in the Back to the Future, and the same Universal lot there where Marty McFly meets his father for the first time. Yeah, uh, that that's a fun piece of trivia. But uh, it's a very gray and brown world to what, to your point, Aaron. It is a uh, a gritty part of Chicago for sure. It's funny that they only shot a few days in Chicago and Los Angeles. Most of the exteriors were filmed in in a universal back lot. The only ones that are really Chicago are the scenes where like Doyle's boarding a train in uh, New York headed to Chicago. That was actually filmed in Chicago's Union Station. Chad and I are both West Virginians. We were both born in West Virginia, so I want to give a little shout out here. There's a little, there's a shot there and shot in Wheeling, West Virginia to get some old fabric. Yeah. If you need some rundown Chicago because Chicago is a better city than it used to be, you go to Wheeling, West Virginia. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I feel about that, but we're also yeah, going Yeah, to... I was going to say is that really a that doesn't sound like a good uh, I'm not from Wheeling. Attraction. <laughs> yeah, I'm not from Wheeling, so um Yeah. We're also going to California. Uh, what it was like to be in Depression era Chicago. Come on down. <laughs> <laughs> in, in honesty, the light show in, in uh, Christmas time in Wheeling's fantastic. So, <laughs> yes. yeah, but the carousel that was all in California. I didn't. My initial thought was, okay, this is a ridiculous business. Like your entire business is dedicated to a merry-go-round, but apparently that's a thing. If you've got a speakeasy going on, some I I couldn't yeah. tell if uh, she was running. Uh, were, were there hookers involved at this as well as backroom mobs? I would guess so. Just based on the scene where she she let the girls ride and it showed all of the scantily clad ladies riding the merry-go-round, yeah. I would guess that was part of her her side business. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah, I'm sure they had nipple tassels this earlier. This, this movie earlier on, I, I always, yeah. I've always find those amusing. And I like, I'm, I'm showing my hand on the soundtracks, like the soundtrack I love, but there's one moment where like there's a strip scene and it's just like, I find that whole concept of like uh big brassy circus like horns or something like that playing and uh, standing in an audience. I'm just like, this is a different time. So yeah. more cabaret. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, George Roy Hill researched old Chicago or old Hollywood gangster films from the 1930s. He noticed that there are not a lot of extras in the scenes, so the streets are particularly empty. And I, I am thinking about it. Noir films always do show an emptiness in their cities, and it makes you feel really isolated and scared. Like if you're to, if you are to be gunned down in the street, nobody's going to know. And it is one of those things where, how is the city this empty? That is conveyed here in this movie, and again to that same notion. You do see these gangsters just like popping off shots at uh, Redford as he's like walking, like running away. It doesn't feel like public streets are very safe when you make them this empty. <laughs> well, yeah, those streets didn't look too safe, even if there were people running around. So good point. But I guess in the moment you don't think, oh, hey, there are no extras. But when you think about it, it's like you know every scene when he's, you might see one or two here or there, but. It really was empty. Everybody in Chicago is literally in the setup in the wire room. And that's where everybody in the city is. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's in on it except for Doyle. <laughs> the Chicago elevated train uh, is sequence is definitely my favorite part of Chicago that they did get in there. That That is so Chicago. They show a painted skyline beyond. That's a really nice shot with the train moving down that as well. So... If there was a moment of atmosphere that just made me go like, mm, this is it, it's that. I, I will tell you this much for all this, uh, like I don't, you keep saying the Chicago doesn't feel like a place I wanted to go visit. It did feel like an uptick 
from Joliet, Illinois, which I really didn't want to go visit it in the 1930s sure. when I watched yeah, this. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah, the the one shot, the wide shot of of Redford hopping fences as he's trying to get away after Luther gets killed really showed I mean that was that was like third world country looking. <laughs> so not somewhere I want to be. Yeah, and you're in an alleyway after watching somebody get jumped and you're seriously able to sell it to somebody who's like, hey, I can't hand you this money because you're going to get jumped out there on the sidewalk. It's right. Like, you just got jumped in the corner in the alleyway. Isn't this the place where the jumping occurs? So you mean if I walk out there, I'm going to still get jumped? So, yeah, uh, Joliet, it, it, it has seen better days and these weren't those days. No, definitely not. Similar to Bonnie and Clyde, and what that had done for women's fashion and the 1930s inspired fashions, men's clothing kicks in with gangster influences around this time. And the sting is a large part to do with that. So ridiculously short ties and big, big, wide, short ties. You're right. It, you know, I guess at the time, maybe it increased the popularity. But when I was watching it, the whole thing I kept thinking is no way I could pull that off. There's no way anybody could pull that off in this day and age. Yeah, Robert Redford couldn't. I like those 1950s straight ties that are really narrow and slender. So, yeah, my, I myself am sitting there going those ties. I'm just like, ah, those ties. Ugh. Yeah, it's not helpful for the overweight characters, too. It just makes you look like a, a wimpy from Popeye. I'd gladly pay you Tuesday for hamburger today. <laughs> yes, yeah. I liked how Redford's idea of buying a schnazzy suit did somehow come off as cheap to the character. I liked, I liked, oh, yeah. the, I liked yeah. that, like, uh, this is his idea of the nicest suit that one could buy. And I even liked how, like, when he was being, like, fit by a tailor, like, he was kind of showing rebuttal. I'm just like, I can't wear this. And it's just like, you're looking better. Shut up and let him do it. Yeah, I, I thought that was uh, the whole montage of him being prepped for this con job, I thought was was a pretty great part of the movie where he's Gondorf is trying to get him to get a haircut and, and get his manicure done. And you can see how really reluctant he is. I mean, it's all just part of a montage with that same ragtime music in the background. But I just think the faces that Redford makes while he's being pampered, he, he's not enjoying one second of it. So I thought it was a, that was probably the biggest piece of comedy throughout. I mean, it's listed as a comedy. There's not many laugh out loud comedic moments but that was one of the ones that i found more of a funny we didn't talk about that what would you what would, how do would you slice this as a genre obviously crime i think is its primary thing but would you call this a comedy because I, I myself i'm sitting there going it's lighter in tone it has dramatic elements i have a hard time to saying like which bucket am i putting this in yeah i don't know i guess for me there there's always more of the subgenres, and and at this point you have to have an entire genre dedicated to these heist type of movies because of how popular they are and how many there are. Mm, okay. I, I definitely wouldn't label it as a comedy though. Yeah. Yeah. It's a subset called caper films. Exactly. Oh. There you go. I think about capers being delicious little green things that I, you're served on fish. I don't know. Uh, we don't disagree on delicious, but yes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Chad, any other wardrobe comments that you had? I, they Might Be Giants influenced me here. I actually knew who Edith Head was because They Might Be Giants has a song about her. So we, we've run into her on Roman Holiday. Man, she was great. This was her eighth Academy Award for Best Costume Design. So getting her was a huge, huge get for this movie. Yeah, 
Yeah, and she said that uh, when when winning her Oscar, she says, "Just imagine dressing the two handsomest men in the world, then getting this uh, for her Oscar." So it does it does help your job when you're dressing beautiful people. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. And and to go back to the the rise in popularity of this type of clothing, I think probably no matter what you put Paul Newman and Robert Redford in at this time, that becomes popular. Okay, I have a question here. This is a competition. So you both have seen Butch Cassidy, right? Yes. I have not. Oh, this well, he might not be able to participate. Sorry. <laughs> so in Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, Redford has a mustache and Newman is clean shaven. And Redford has, sorry, in this in this movie, Newman has a mustache and Redford is clean shaven. Who wins the battle of the stashes? And Chad, you might have to Google this one real fast. But uh, Aaron. Oh, I, who, I know who, what he looks like. Okay, yeah. I was going to say, Aaron, who has the better stash? Settle this for once and for all. Uh, I'm going with Newman. I, I think Redford looks a lot better without it. Newman in his later stuff had it often. So, Okay. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm going with Newman. I'm going with Newman as well. I mean, uh, I don't know what you call that, that part of your upper lip in the middle when Newman removes that. But uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a classy mustache when you take that middle part out. Yeah. And when I think of, obviously, I'm not. I've seen Newman's filmography, but I'm not old enough to have been around at that time. So my when I think of Paul Newman, I think of Paul Newman from Road to Perdition, and it's kind of older man with a mustache. Oh, that's like his last movie, isn't it? Uh, close to it. Close to it. Okay. I think he did... Uh, well, maybe that wasn't a movie. He did an HBO series, I know, that was one of his last but anyways uh when i think of paul newman he does have a mustache so oh okay yeah i i think of the no mustache paul newman for whatever reason when i think of paul newman so yeah as well as redford and then he didn't win this battle because i feel like redford's hair is dramatically different than his facial hair and i always find that to be somewhat like like if there's too much of a difference between the two i start to like it doesn't compute i feel like your i feel like your mustache is fake at that point so uh that's why Rodford, Redford loses this one in a straight, straight across the board. He loses the battle. Then you have been listening to the Stash podcast. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. What a tangent. I know. Soundtracks, do you like ragtime music, Aaron? Because you got a lot of it here. Uh, I can't say I do. But for the movie, I'm fine with it. For, for this movie in particular, I think it was a fine choice. So but, don't send Aaron Scott Joplin's greatest hits for Christmas. Well, you know, it just kind of feels, I don't know, maybe it's because we aren't used to it, but it kind of instantly feels like you lose credibility. It's like, oh, we're not taking it too seriously, are we? Oh, interesting. Okay. Chad, what about you? Is this a ragtime going down in, any better for you or are you with Aaron on this one? I thought it was used okay in some places. I like The Entertainer. That's a classic. But yeah, sometimes it actually ruined the scene. So I really wish they had done something differently. It, Aaron hit it right on the head of saying, yeah, we're not going to take this seriously. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, maybe, because I like ragtime music, my, my um, aunt and my sister you know, were piano players, and I just grew up hearing you know, this ragtime kind of music, the entertainer heavily, but also other things by Scott Joplin. Um, I like this music. Uh, it, I wish it would be more piano centric and a little less orchestral. I feel like that's the heart of this music. I feel like it's also unexpected because if you know this music, it's actually from an older era than this. 
Like this is not the the zeitgeist of the time. It's it's from turn of the century. It's like 1900s. Like the O's maybe like 1900 to 1910 that, that you would have this music. So it's oddly enough he took uh, George Roy Hill put all of this effort and to all these 1930s tricks. This music doesn't really come from the 30s. So that was strange to me. And the other thing I do like it though because it sets the tone. And that lighter tone is what made me have fun with this. Yes, uh, and that's where I, I would definitely agree with you there. Although I don't like it, and it, it did have, I, I don't know, it, it's not what you expect. It does set the tone for the entire thing. Yeah, I don't want these tense strings in this movie. I do have fun. I like that Paul Newman is smirking and having, like, and just cakewalking his way through taking this guy's, you know, bank account. I... I have fun with it and without those elements, whereas I was a little hard on the cinematography for cheapening it. I'm not with, I'm not with Chad on this one. I think the soundtrack gives it the levity that I enjoy in this movie. So yeah, that's uh, Marvin Hamlish uh, was approached to do Scott Joplin music in this. And he was reluctant. He doesn't like to do anything that's not composed original music. He agreed after seeing the first cut of the screening room, and he said that this is one of the best pictures that he had seen in a long time, and he just wanted to be in, involved with it. And so, um, you know, Hill had uh, directed uh, flawlessly, he thought, and he thought Newman and Redford were great, and uh, he, he ended up doing it. He built montages and sequences for the pictures on purpose. There's talkless parts in the movie that the director had built in, Hill had done, and Hamlish said, I love it when a director does that. So when you do all of those things, I couldn't say no at that point. So it's not an original of Marvin Hamlish, but uh, he was happy to get involved because of all the right things were done to accommodate music. And it does show, like, it's, it's a big part of it. So I wouldn't want to change the music that's in this at all. And, at, uh, you know, I don't, we're a long way off from it, but at the end of the year, when you do best soundtracks, this will be in my nomination category for, for my favorite soundtrack. Cause I, I actually did like the soundtrack. I, I listened to it on my own, just separate of watching this movie this week. And it's like, this just puts you in a good mood. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I can't say I'm a fan of it, but for this movie, I think it was the right choice. And honestly, after you watch it, it's like, what else do you replace it with a, an original soundtrack that. It just doesn't seem like anything else would work. Yeah. Now, you get ready to hand out some awards with us, Aaron. Yes. Yes, I am. Give us your MVP of the sting. Um, okay, surprisingly, even though Paul Newman is my favorite, Robert Redford would be up there in my favorite actors, I have to give it to Shaw in this movie. I think despite how fun the movie is, he created a villain that, is worth rooting against but at the same time you're you're kind of in awe that he created this type of character for this type of movie so robert shaw is definitely my mvp for this movie yep he has a piercing glare same here loved him in this part wow two mvps for robert shaw then uh chad anything to add just he's so versatile i mean he's obviously done two great villains but jaws as well i He's someone like Tim Curry for a podcast. It's like he shows up, he's going to get an award. Yeah, he's, he's he's moving up my list for sure. I want to I want to see more of his catalog now. I'm going to go Robert Redford in this one. His range that he shows from going from this like loose cannon to being part of this well-oiled machine, his reserved mannerisms and stuff like that. This is probably my favorite role I've seen him do by a lot and i really enjoyed him in this so i'm gonna go mvp on this one i mean it's kind of his movie so it's he's more in position to get it but he also didn't disappoint either 
Best Supporting, Aaron. Well, I guess for this one, I kind of have to give Newman an award. So, I mean, this was obviously, this was Redford's movie, and Robert Shaw had, I think, probably had even more lines and screen time than Paul Newman. But the one poker scene, I think that's Paul Newman on, on full display, and it's wonderful. So, Best Supporting Actor is Paul Newman. Okay, Chad. I went with James Earl Jones' daddy, Robert Earl Jones. I really liked Luther. He was a cool partner, and I was sad he was cut out so early. Thank you for making that familial connection there. Yeah, I'm glad you called that out. But yeah, he was awesome. Good choice. I'm going with Robert Shaw here because for all the reasons that you guys said, and I totally respect you guys giving him MVP, so Shaw was a great villain character. So Hidden Gem, Aaron. You know, she didn't have much of a role, and and now I'm, I'm... Blanking on the actress's name, but she played Billy. Eileen Brennan playing Billy, I think, was a surprise how, I guess in this viewing, I, I, I never remembered how pivotal a part that character was. So I think it maybe be between Eileen Brennan and, and Harold Gould, who was Kid Twist. Yeah. Who both had kind of more pivotal points, but weren't huge parts of it. Yeah, Harry Gold was mine. I He's just one of those faces. He looks just right for the part he's playing yeah i'm gonna go with joe tornator he's the black glove gunman by gondorf somehow that's the way i want a 1930s hitman to be <laughs> there was <laughs> one scene he turned off his lamp as he was going to bed with just a gloved hand still in his <laughs> suit i'm like okay <laughs> he's on all the time yep now recast somebody if you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place aaron who would it be I don't know if he'd be too too much of a, a rough character, but I think anytime you're talking about 60s and 70s, you could recast anybody with Steve McQueen and be fine with it. <laughs> I think I'd maybe recast Redford with Steve McQueen and see what happens. Wow. It's, it would be a completely different character. I was going to say, less, less charming, a lot more tough on that guy. Yes. In fact, yeah. I'm, so I, I'm, I'm having how... a hard time seeing anybody push uh, Steve McQueen in an alleyway and say, give me my money. <laughs> and, and not, Yeah, exactly. So I don't know how it would work, but anytime you're recasting anything in the 60s and 70s, Steve McQueen's my choice. If that happens, Steve McQueen would just take his arm, put it behind his back, and it's like, why don't you give me the rest of your money in your wallet right now? Yep, and drive <laughs> off in an awesome car. <laughs> yeah. Uh, although, uh, you know, Steve McQueen racing Paul Newman sounds like another movie. Oh, I wish. Yeah. That would have been good. Unfortunately, their their team up was The Towering Inferno, which is a fine enough movie. You're but... hard. On, yeah, you're hard on that one. Right? <laughs> it's it's a really long disaster movie that just seems like everybody was in it for the money. Have you seen the Snyder cut of it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have not. Just a lot more slow motion scenes of, of fighting fires. More bad CGI and yep. <laughs> and more moping and brooding. Yes. Uh, anyway, um, Chad, recast. I'm going to recast Eileen Brennan. She just, it's not her fault, but she looks exactly like my aunt. And it's really unsettling. <laughs> so it, it was so strange. I, I had to go look up the name immediately. I'm like, there's no way. I'm replacing her with Elizabeth Montgomery, who was Samantha from Bewitched. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like I like Eileen Brennan. She's got a she's got a roughness to her that seems very fitting for a she's she's a survivor and not only th- she thrives in this gritty environment. I, I like her in this one. Uh maybe your aunt would uh 
would do well as well. And the, the and same personality, pretty- like everything, speech, uh, just it was creepy. Wow, I'm gonna go after Demetra Arliss. She was she was good, and I had I'm just be forewarned. I love the cast across the board on this one, so I had a hard time doing this one. But I'm gonna go with Lucina Polizzi. Uh, she's from Thunderbolt. She plays Fiona Volpe. If so, I want to put two Bond henchmen in this one. She's a deadly beauty, but also quite um, enticing in her own right, and I think she would charm you, but then also have the level of threat when necessary. So that's that's my pick for that one. Very nice. And I would never recast Robert Redford in this movie, but if I had to, I was sitting there thinking, who else would be good for this one? Frank Langella. Like, you know, when we did the 12 Chairs episode, uh, Chad and I, I thought he had like this smoothness and this charisma and always getting sliding through the cracks and stuff like that. I thought, you know what? I could see him doing a role like this. Hmm. No? You know, when I think of Frank... I don't know that I've ever seen a picture of him young. So <laughs> he's just like forever the the old man when I think of him. I, I guess I would have to see any of his older work. I, I That would be the issue. Yeah. Uh, anyway, best shot, Chad. There's a long shot with Redford being chased at the train station. He doubles back along the roof. I thought it was a great continuous shot. It's kind of ruined by goofy music, but I like the shot. Aaron, did I give you best shot? No, not yet, but... I guess sticking to the theme, uh, a chase scene involving Redford after he escapes the diner and he, he exits the diner, turns one way, which leads him right back to the would-be assassin, and then he has to double back and go to the alley. I just think that was a, a little bit of comedy that was otherwise lacking. Uh, situational comedy more than laugh out loud, but I like that one. I, th- I think there was just something about the way it was lit, the way it was shot. I, I, that was my favorite scene. Mm, it's a good one. And there are all actually are a fair bit of camera candy moments in this one, for sure. Mine's going to go to Doyle Lonigan's reflection in the storefront of the pharmacy. You see a busy street behind him, and it's a reflection shot. You see into the pharmacy, you see Lonigan's face, and then the camera zooms and looks up, and you see Kid Twist behind the curtains watching him menacingly as it transitions beautifully to him hitting the windowsill button. And uh, just as much as this is a fine-tuned, orchestrated plan that's unfolding, it's a fine-tuned, orchestrated shot. I just want to give a runner-up to to the first-person shoot, uh, the the gunman shot that like yes. zooms out from the window and then pans over, and uh, when Redford wakes up with Loretta in the morning, that's another really ambitious, awesome shot. Yeah, good camera work here. Best scene, Aaron. Again, I have to go. This this is completely biased because of my love for Paul Newman, but that poker scene between him and Lonigan. And the way you see it's all part of the setup to to hook Lonigan into this bigger play. And man, the the tension between the two and the, the way they just keep ramping up Lonigan's anger and he has to take a breather. And it's just I think that whole scene, the whole poker scene was was my favorite part of it. Mm, great choice. Chad, what about you? Yeah, yeah, the poker scene. But I'm going to be a little bit more specific. Uh, when Gondorf and Shaw are antagonizing Lonigan at the card table, they're constantly mispronouncing his name. Yes. <laughs> Just that ridiculousness and the casual conversation that they're doing it. Yeah, I, I like the setup and really getting under Lonigan's skin that way. It was like a funny Casino Royale. 
Yeah, that's a good poker scene. And I, I actually, it was my runner up. I still was taken by, I like these scenes where Robert Redford is evading his pursuers and particularly the one where he hops the subway or the elevated train line, hops up on the roof and he's outrunning this fat muscle guy trying to like shake him down. So I, I definitely like, I like these moments where Robert Redford's running and this one with the music playing and all that evading Lieutenant Snyder is uh, definitely a favorite part. And by the way, Snyder is uh, Charles During and that's the old man who's running for re-election and Old Brother, Where Art Thou Later? Makes sense, oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I guess I didn't put that together, but yeah. When yeah. you know it, it seems obvious. Yeah, yeah, so vote for Pappy. <laughs> Best wardrobe moment, Aaron. I guess I don't know if it's a moment uh, rather than a, a montage of moments, but I just like the montage of Gondorf getting Hooker ready for the big con, uh, you know, taking him to, to get sized and fit for this suit that he obviously doesn't like and, and having his haircut and his manicure. And the whole thing was just kind of a, it, it was a lighthearted fun moment. Good choice. Good choice. Chad, is it nipple tassels for you? Ooh, I, you I, know, I didn't think about that one. Yeah. <laughs> I like hats. So I, I'm just going to give it up for the hats in this movie. I thought they were great. And the fact Robert Redford is running awkwardly so he can keep his hat on at times, uh, they they put a lot of effort and focus on those. Yeah, yeah. I, I got to go with Paul Newman's gray suit. Man, that, that his gray suit, that uh, he has the black tie, his blue yeah, He's got piercing blue eyes as well. His, uh, the black band on the hat, that's a schnazzy getup for him. I, he, he, he pulled that off nicely. So change one thing, Aaron. I don't know if it's counts as a change but it would be more of an addition uh, just something in the screenplay that adds a bit of tension and it doesn't have to be too super serious where somebody gets hurt or killed or whatever because it wouldn't fit but just something that makes you question more whether or not they can pull it off and i think there's just mm. something missing something going wrong yeah 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 i i, I think that doing that makes them seem more intelligent you know like this isn't the plan but that's not a problem i'll just tiptoe sidestep and uh, you know it makes you look like what if it doesn't go your way and you're still that smart to to get through it so i'm I'm with you aaron that's a really keen observation that would make gondorf look even smarter than he already looks so chad what about you change one thing i harped on it early but i need more tidbits throughout the movie I just felt like the ending was too out of nowhere. And it'd be nice if there were little pieces of dialogue or even characters in the background that were meeting and talking that you could pick up on a second time. My change one thing is going to be the very, very ending. Not not the, uh, hey, we're okay, we didn't actually shoot each other kind of ending. Beyond that, when they're looking into the sunset, he's like, hey, don't you want to c collect your money? I would like him to say, send it to Alva Coleman, hmm. Luther's wife. Yeah, that would have been more fitting. Or... Yeah, <laughs> I, it did feel out of character. I, I guess we're supposed to think that he learned something through all of this, but it did feel out of character for him to just decide not to do anything with it. He got his revenge and that's what he was looking out for, but not collecting it or whatever or whatever. Saying I'm going to blow it anyway was good, but and that's to the character's point because he lives to he lives for the next con. So if he's not on the edge, then he won't do that. And I, I, right. I, I'm OK with that, but I just... I'd like that connection back to the whole reason he did all this was to get back for Luther. And this, this yeah. kind of would reinforce that for me. 
Yeah, yeah I like change. it. So best quote of the movie, Aaron. Two things. So the first would have been right when Gondorf and Hooker meet, when he finds Gondorf passed out drunk and he throws him in the tub and turns the water on. And the first exchange between them is, is Gondorf says, you're a real horse's ass. And, and Hooker says, Luther said, I could learn something from you. I already know how to drink. It's like just the, it's the perfect way for these two characters to meet. The other would have been uh, when they're in the Chicago train station, when, when uh, Redford's character Hooker says he's not as tough as he thinks, talking about Lonigan. Yeah. And Gondorf's response is, neither are we. I think it's perfect. I think it's yeah. just such a good line. Nice. Yeah. Chad, what about you? Best quote. Your boss is quite a card player, Mr. Kelly. How does he do it? He cheats. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, I love that moment in the movie where he says, I put it all in Lucky Dan, half a million dollars to win. And then Kid Twist looks at him and said, I said, place, place it on Lucky D. That horse is going to come run second. <laughs> and like the look on Robert Shaw's face, like after a pause and a horrified look as like he <laughs> tries to go back to the betting booth. There's been a mistake. Give me my money back. Like <laughs> That's uh that that's the moment of the sting and that's the moment of this movie and that's a very rewarding part for sure i will say i'm gonna steal poke's line and use it just constantly in the future the sit down and shut up will you try not to live up to all my expectations yeah that, that that's that is good we've had fun here but aaron we're coming down to the end remind people where we can hear you yeah our podcast is the movie review crew podcast it's available uh, wherever you can get your podcast, you should be able to find us. And we generally do one, sometimes two a week. And uh, you can go to moviereviewcrew.com and, and submit recommendations for what we should watch or just see what we've done in the past. I do recommend it. So if you enjoy the Retro Movie Roundtable, definitely check out the Film Review Crew. They have they have some good people on there and they're fun to listen to. And their chemistry is good too. So Aaron, we've come down to the end on a five-star scale, half-star intervals, what do you give the sting? Based largely on your two leads, well, I guess three. Robert Shaw's fantastic. I say I got to give it a four out of five, and it's bordering on being maybe even higher than that. It's it's a movie I think everybody should at least take the time to watch it. If you don't like it, fine. But I think it's a for movie lovers. I think it's one that stands the test of time and is is definitely worth seeking out. Yes, absolutely. Great choice. And Chad, I, I sense you're going to be a little cooler on this one. What, what are you going to do on a five-star scale here? No, I'm giving it four stars as well. I had a good time. It was a good movie, and the star power was great to watch. Okay, yeah. I'm going 4.5. I had a I had a very fun time with this one, and I totally see why it lives up to the hype. And I don't think it would have had as much fun had they not taken this lighter tone. This is a movie I want to rewatch again. It's a movie I want to share. It's a movie I want to own, to be honest with you, to, to do, to take the ride again. And if it was all serious and if it was like the more heavy heist movies, I find are rewarding for a time. And then you almost got to put them down for a long time, maybe even for get a few beats and then come back to them. This one only gets better the more you know what's going to happen just because you like it. You like the characters involved and uh, such a great villain, such such good um you know, main characters. Yeah. 4.5 for me. And it has room to grow, to be honest with you. I, I, I don't always hand out a five right away. And given that I just saw this for the first two times this week, it, it 4.5 with room to grow. Chad, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Can't wait. Yeah. 
Let's see. So option number one, the long goodbye from 1973, a private investigator, Philip Marlowe, finds his friend out of a jam, but in doing so, gets implicated in his wife's murder. Option two, the harder they fall from 1956, an ex-sports writer is hired by a shady fight promoter to promote his latest find, an unknown but easily exploitable rising star from Argentina. And option three, 7-Eleven Ocean Drive from 1950. The electronics expert creates a huge bookie broadcast system for his crime boss and takes over operations when his boss is murdered. His greed leads them on a deathly destructive path. You know what? Let's stay in 1973 with the long goodbye. Goodbye. That's a long goodbye. (laughs) Clever. Yeah, that's that is something I'd expect from our podcast host. (laughs) Uh, so Aaron, we had a lot of fun with you. Thanks for coming on, man. Yes, yeah, definitely. You. Definitely. Thanks for having me. All right. And to all the lords, ladies and knights of the retro movie roundup, we invite you to reach out to us. We do want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google play, wherever you get your podcast, give us a like on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at at movie underscore retro. We're on Instagram and email us at retro movie roundtable at yahoo.com as well as you can check us out on our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Retro Movie Roundtable. Any contributions to the show will go to making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chat. You expect us to just walk out the casino with millions of dollars on us? Yeah. <laughs>